Well, thanks again for your lovely welcome. It is really, uh, it's really great. Had some great conversations after the first service, and uh, maybe we can have some good conversations after this service as well. I um, um, I'll give you a heads up of what I want to do uh, today. I want to just give you quickly um, a definition um, of poverty, or start to talk a little bit about poverty, um, and then look at. Uh, Look at a story of Jesus and uh, people, uh, uh, people that he encounters, and how poverty um, can be seen in that story. Um, and then, what I didn't do in the first service, I'll do in this service. And don't let me forget to do it, but I will do it. Is that to tell you a story from Cambodia when I was there last year, and then, um, uh, then we'll sort of wrap it all up and pull it all together. Sound okay? Okay. Feel free to leave any time. You know. It's, uh, um, so poverty is an interesting thing. There are lots of definitions of poverty. Lots of people um, have working definitions of poverty, and often the most um, um, most common garden variety definition of poverty is people are poor because they don't have enough of something because they lack something. Don't have enough money. Don't have enough resources. Don't have enough. Uh, don't have a place to live. They're, and uh, often in the past, the way that aid and development has been done has been: if we just send them more money, then they'll be fine. If we give them enough, then they'll be fine. But there are other things going on, and uh, there are what I like to think about: five different characters in the story of poverty. Um, if you think of poverty as a story as this narrative that's going on uh, around the world and in people's lives, uh, I think there are five things that are uh, characters in the story. If we can flick to the next slide. Um, so there are five different types of poverty. There's physical poverty. We know about that, right? People don't have a place to live. People don't have a, uh, enough money. People don't have enough food. There are things that affect people's physical bodies and physical situation that uh, is poverty. There's also uh, mental or psychological poverty. Poverty that is... Um, uh, either because people are trapped in mindsets or because people are so oppressed by their situation that their mental health suffers and that they're caught in this psychological poverty. There's also spiritual poverty. Now, we know about that. People, uh, everyone, because of broken relationship with God, everyone is spiritually poor. Um, uh, but we know that uh, there are some places where people can live in abject physical poverty but be spiritually rich, right? Uh, in Australia, perhaps it's the opposite. We have plenty of material goods and perhaps as a nation we're spiritually poor. So these things sort of interplay with each other and not all of them exist in the same space, although sometimes they do. There's relational poverty. Poverty causes relationship breakdown or perhaps relationship breakdown causes poverty. Broken relationship with God, broken relationship with each other, broken relationship with ourselves, broken relationship in our families, tribally broken relationships, um, when I was in in Cambodia, uh, I was work, visited an organisation that works there and uh, does a lot of work in areas that have been devastated by uh, the Cambodian War and the Khmer Rouge. And in this uh, organisation, the guy that leads it had dinner with him and he was telling us a story about both of his parents were killed by the Khmer Rouge. Um, and he's now working in this space where... Uh, they're trying to bring restoration to all the damage that had been done in Cambodia. And the next day we're in his office and we're meeting all the staff that work with him and he's going around, this is so-and-so, she does this, he does this, she does this, he does this. This is, I can't even think of the guy's name now, this, is, this guy, uh, he was a former Khmer Rouge soldier. He works for us now. Like, so 
dealing with poverty actually means dealing with relationships and broken relationship and restoring that as well. And then there's systemic poverty, that the systems of the world itself and the systems that humans create can create poverty. So the uh, classic one is the global fashion system and uh, the amount of money that goes into keeping people in slavery, also in uh, you know, uh, chocolate production and coffee production, all these things that we just take for granted. We'll go and buy a new shirt, we'll go and buy a cup of coffee, we'll go and buy some yummy chocolate. Um, uh, those systems in themselves, just buying some of those things sometimes actually can keep people in slavery and in poverty. There's 41, 41 and a half million people in Bangladesh who are uh, working underpaid workers in the fashion industry. Um, and, you know, I'll let you deal with that and let that sink in. But there's also religious systems. So, uh, you know, in India, the, the caste system that's based out of this whole religious idea that you come back in different lives based on how, uh, how well you perform in one life is how you, well you come back in the next life. You know that stuff, right? And if you live a, make mistakes or live a poor life, next time you come back, you come back as a lower caste. And if you're born into that caste, there's nothing you can do to get out of it. That's just how it is. And you don't get access to help. You don't get access to food or water or housing or any of those things just because of the system, not anything that you've done. So there's all these different levels of poverty that are, that are playing out, which are totally against the way God actually created the world to be. That God created this world, this place, that the, the Hebrew word for... You know, God created the world and it was good. The Hebrew word for, for how God sees the world he wants it to be is this word shalom, which often gets translated peace but means a whole lot more than that. It means this place of rightness, of well-being, of um, where everything is in the place it should be. Uh, N.T. Wright, the New Testament theologian, says God is, in, through, through Jesus, God is putting the world to rights, like that everything is right again. And so we came from this place and because of sin and brokenness, we're living now in this mess, but God plans to restore it all again. In this shalom. In, uh, Jesus talks about it in John 10. He says, in John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly, have it in its fullness, have this life that is overflowing with goodness, which is totally the opposite to poverty, right? Our, um, our mission statement, our vision at Baptist World Aid, if we go to the next slide, is um, this. We dream of a world where poverty is ended and all people enjoy the fullness of life God intends. All people. And that doesn't just mean that all people have a decent level of income or all people can um, uh, have enough food to eat. It means that all of us meet all of those five criteria. We're doing well in all of those five areas. And one of, one of the things that we've changed to as an organisation over the last few years is trying to become what we call a broker. Like we're trying to match up the communities overseas with communities in Australia so that they can receive from us and learn from us and we can receive from them and learn from them. So we're coming together as equals, not with some sort of power imbalance. Because I've seen that. I've been to developing communities overseas and when you're the guys who come in who fund the programs, suddenly you're treated a whole lot differently. And we work really hard not to be those people. Um, people on the ground are so resilient and so clever and so desperate to uh, see their lives change. You know, it's funny, I learnt this, poor people don't want to be poor. 
you know, like, and you give them a little bit of help and they will do amazing things with it because they're smart and they're resilient and they're amazingly clever at, and resourceful at, at changing their lives. They just need some help with the systems generally. So, Jesus said, I've come, you might have life and have it abundantly in John 10.10. 10. That's actually a reaction to everything that was going on. Funnily enough, you, you get this in John chapter 9. And uh, in Bible college, I learned that John chapter 9 comes before John chapter 10. And that was uh, well worth the five years of education. Um, but let's, um, let's dig into John chapter 9, because this is what leads Jesus to talk about this abundant life. And it's a story I think that you'll know really well, and I hopefully we can present it in a way this morning that... Um, opens it up a bit more. I'm going to read from the Passion Translation. You may not have heard of that. It's a fairly new translation, but the language in it is brilliant and it, um, it captures both the, uh, the seriousness of the situation but also the, the comedy in the situation. And uh, so I want you to read this. As we read it through, two things I'd like you to do. One is to try and imagine it being a scene out of a Monty Python movie because it's a bit like that. If you don't know who Monty Python is, oh have a chat with you about that afterwards as well. Um, but, um, but also, uh, as we read through, see if you can identify some of these characters from that poverty story in this, those different types of poverty and different ways that poverty works out. All right, let's have a go. Afterward, as Jesus walked down the street, he noticed a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Teacher, whose sin caused this guy's blindness, his own or the sin of his parents? So immediately there's an issue here. Immediately, there's an issue around uh, why is this guy blind? Immediately, there's labels put on him. He's not like us. He's, he's not blessed like us. He doesn't fit in like us. So there must be something wrong with him and it must be sin. Someone sinned for him to be like this. Because if, if you're good and you're blessed by God, then you wouldn't be sick. You wouldn't be blind. Now, that happens, Right? We see, we see that stuff. If there's something wrong with someone, whose fault is it? Because that's not normal. So if you're not normal, there's something wrong. There's someone's fault. So it's either his fault or it's his parents' fault. Jesus answered, neither. It happened to him so that you could watch him experience God's miracle. While I'm with you, it is daytime and we must do the works of God who sent me while the light shines. For there is coming a dark night where no one will be able to work. As long as I'm with you, my life is the light that pierces the world's darkness. Then Jesus spat on the ground and made some clay with his saliva. Then he anointed the blind man's eyes with the clay. And he said to the blind man, Now go and wash the clay from your eyes in the ritual pool of Siloam. So he went and washed his face. And as he came back, he could see for the first time in his life. Now, let's just talk about the blind man for a second. In uh, we're not sure exactly where this happened, um, but most likely it happened in a small community. And if it happened in that small community, it's a community of maybe, at the most, 500 people. So people know this guy. If you've ever travelled overseas, if you've ever, um, ever been to uh, places where there are beggars, either in developing nations or in, um, even in uh, big cities like London or Paris or New York, those places, there are beggars and they often congregate where they know they're going to get money. So they'll congregate around tourist areas, they'll congregate, congregate around temples, around churches, around people, around where they think people might notice them and people might be inclined to give them something, right? You've seen that. 
And so this guy is probably in one of those places. He probably begs publicly. And so people walk past him every day. They know him. He's not an unknown person in his community, but he's in a box. That's the blind beggar. So he turns up, he can see again. This caused quite a stir among the people of the neighbourhood for they noticed that the blind beggar was now seeing. They began to say to one another, isn't this the blind man who once sat and begged? They began to say to each other, right? So this guy's standing there and they are standing next to him just a few feet away having a conversation about him. This is what happens in systemic poverty. What happens is we talk about the problem and we talk about the issues, but we never actually include the people whose problem it is. We don't listen to them. They have a voice too. So they're having this debate amongst themselves. Isn't this the blind man who once sat and begged? Some said, oh, no, it can't be him. Others said, but it looks like him. It just has to be him. And all the while, the man is on the outside of this crowd. He says, all the while, the man kept insisting, I am him. I am the man who was born blind. So there's this conversation going on that he's being excluded from. And he keeps jumping in going, it's me. You know, it's like Donkey and Shrek. You know, pick me, pick me. It's me. Like, it's me. Look. Look at me. It's me. You're having this conversation. I'm here. I can hear what you're saying. <laughs> I had a friend who was blind. And um, <laughs> he, said, oh, he often said the thing he hates most is the way people talk louder to him. <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> it is me. I am the guy. Who's... Finally, finally, they asked him, oh, here's a brilliant idea. Oh, I've got a great idea. Let's actually talk to this guy. He might know something about it. What's happened to you? He replied, I met the man named Jesus. He rubbed clay on my eyes and said, go to the pool named Siloam and wash. So I went and while I was washing the clay from my eyes, I began to see for the very first time ever. So he's got this factual account of what happened. Just the facts. I went, I, saw, I met this man. He made this mud. He put it on my eyes. He told me to go and wash it. I went and washed it off. And as I washed it off, I could see. That's just the facts, Your Honour. So the people of the neighbourhood inquired, where is this man? I have no idea, the man replied. So the people marched him over to the Pharisees to speak with them. Now the Pharisees are a whole different ballgame. Right? These are the leaders of the town. And if I ever have to say who in scripture do I, do I personally identify with most, it's the, it's the Pharisees. I know that because I don't know how much you know about the Pharisees, but the Pharisees grew up, they, the, the movement of the Pharisees started in the intertestamental period, between the Old Testament and the New Testament in those 400 years. And they started because there was this bunch of people who desperately wanted their nation to be blessed by God. You don't know anyone like that, right? They wanted, you know, in our terms, they wanted their nation to be a Christian nation. They wanted a Christian prime minister. They wanted a Christian king. They wanted a godly leader. And they knew that if they could get godly leadership in place and if they knew that everyone followed the law, then God would bless their nation. The Pharisees had a saying, if everyone kept all of the law for just one day, so if all of the people kept all of the law for just one day, the kingdom of God would come. And so they, 
in this time, as the Pharisees grew and developed, they realised that people were difficult to work with. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but people were difficult to work with. And so the Pharisees thought what they can do is like do a how-to guide of keeping the law. And they'll make it easier and easier. Keep breaking it down into the simplest parts. And my, my favourite example of this is uh, about working on a Sabbath. And the Pharisees, you know, they knew that the, the, the law said, you shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so you can't work on the Sabbath. And so they started to make definitions of what work was. And one of the definitions they came up with is you can't travel on the Sabbath. They said, well, you know, people would say, what do you mean by travel? Because, you know, we're humans, right? And if there's a loophole, we're going to find it. What do you mean by travel? Well, um, it means you can't walk too far from home on the Sabbath. Ah, yes, but how far is too far, people would say. They said, ah, well, let us think about it. Okay, you can't walk more than a mile from home on a Sabbath. All right, but define home. Is that our village? Is that our local? Well, okay. You can't walk more than a mile from the place where you prepare your main meal for the day, the place where you cook your food. Okay, so do you know what Jews would do? They made these like little portable camp ovens, these portable kitchens, and they could hold them in their hand, and they could, as long as they were no more than a mile from the little camp kitchen they were carrying in their hands, they could go anywhere they wanted to go without breaking the Sabbath because the law said and the rule said they couldn't be more than a mile from where they cooked their meal. See how we, we continually do that, right? We continually find loopholes and we continually find ways that the rules don't apply to us. So the Pharisees were passionate people, um, but they had this ultimate power and control over people, both religiously and uh, socially. So they marched this guy over to the Pharisees to speak with them. They were concerned because the miracle Jesus performed by making clay with his saliva and anointing the man's eyes happened on a Sabbath day, a day that no one was allowed to, as this translation says, work. Actually puts it in quotation marks. So they were worried. Like, we've got to go get this checked out. Again, the Pharisees probably have rules about this, what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked the man, how did you have your sight restored? At least they asked him first up, you know, rather than... uh, having a debate amongst themselves. They soon get to that. A man anointed my eyes with clay, then I washed, and now I can see for the first time in my life. Again, simplified, here's the facts. Then an argument broke out amongst the Pharisees over the healing of the blind man on the Sabbath. They're not even worried about him anymore. They're worried about that it happened on the Sabbath. Right? We're going to have a, a theological debate now about whether this is legitimate or not uh, based on this being the Sabbath, not anything else. Some said, this man who performed this healing is clearly not from God. He doesn't even observe the Sabbath. Others said, if Jesus is just an ordinary sinner, how could he perform a miracle like that? This prompted them to turn on the man healed of blindness, putting him on the spot in front of all of them, demanding an answer. He becomes the victim. Victim shaming is just a classic manoeuvre in keeping people trapped in systems of poverty. We're just going to blame you. We're going to put you on the spot. You're going to have to answer all of our theological questions for us. They asked, who do you say he is, this man who opened your blind eyes? Not a set-up question at all, right? All right, we can't work it out, so you tell us who you think he is. The guy says, his boldness starting to rise up in him. He's just starting to get a bit more confident. He's a prophet of God, the man replied. 
Still refusing to believe that the man had been healed and was truly blind from birth, the Jewish leaders called for the man's parents to be brought. This probably happened over a few days, right? This is probably not just a a 10-minute thing. This is probably this debate that's raging in the community. They get the parents to come. Okay? They asked him. He gave them an answer they didn't like, so we'll get someone else. So they asked the parents, is this your son? Yes, they answered. Was he really born blind? Yes, he was. So they pressed his parents to answer. Then how is it that he's now seeing? The parents, brilliant, this is the Monty Python stuff, right? Parents say, we have no idea. We don't know what happened to our son. Why don't you ask him? He's a mature adult. What did you bring us here for? What are you dragging us into this thing for? Ask him. We weren't even there. Probably they had a broken relationship with him. Probably he lived on the streets or he lived somewhere. They probably didn't have much contact with him because to be blind would be to bring shame on your family because someone's obviously sinned. Someone's obviously at fault here. The parents were obviously intimidated by the Jewish religious leaders for they had already announced to the people that if anyone publicly confessed Jesus as the Messiah, they would be excommunicated. Excommunicated in the Greek, excommunity kicked out of the community, right? Not just, not just told they can't come to church anymore, but they would have no social standing in the community. They wouldn't be allowed to buy and sell things. They wouldn't be allowed to trade. They wouldn't be allowed to access everything else that the rest of the community accesses. They, they are kicked out of the system, and that is really, really dangerous. They would become like their son. They would become on the margins of the community, just like their son already was, and no one wants to be like that. So they were pretty scared of what the Pharisees could decide about them. So the Pharisees, after not really getting anywhere with the parents, once again they summoned the man who was healed of blindness and said to him, swear to God to tell us the truth. (laughs) I can almost imagine uh, this guy, you know, he's starting to, he's really starting to settle into what's going on now. And it's like, all right, if you ask me to tell the truth, I'm going to tell you the truth. Be careful what you ask for. We know the man who healed you is a sinful man. Do you agree? Like, we're getting really blunt here, right? The healed man, I love this. The healed man replied, I have no idea what kind of man he is. All I know is that I was blind and now I can see for the first time in my life. But what did he do to you, they asked. How did he heal you? The man (laughs) responded, Well, I told you once and he didn't listen to me. Why do you make me repeat it? Love this. Are you wanting to be his followers too? This angered the Jewish leaders. I think that's probably an understatement. They heaped insults on him. Again, victim blaming, right? This is all your fault, dude. We can tell you're one of his followers. Now we know it. We are the true followers of Moses, for we know that God spoke to Moses directly. But as for this one, we don't know where he's coming from. And he's like, now, now he's in full preaching mode. Well, what a surprise this is, the man said. You don't even know where he comes from, but he healed my eyes and now I can see. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but only to godly people who do his will. Yet who has ever heard of a man born blind that was healed and given his eyesight for the very first time? I tell you, if this man isn't from God, he wouldn't be able to heal me like this. Some of the Jewish leaders were enraged. <laughs> like this anger level is just spiking with these guys. 
He said, who, just who do you think you are to lecture us? You were born a blind, filthy sinner. Aha. So they've made up their mind. They know who he is. They know why he's blind. They know what sort of person he is. He's blind and he's filthy and he's a sinner. He deserves nothing. So they threw him out on the street. When Jesus learned that they had thrown him out, he went to find him and said, Do you believe in the Son of God? The man whose blind eyes were healed answered, Who is he, Master? Tell me so that I can place all my faith in him. I love this line. gets me every time I read this passage. Jesus says to the man, you're looking at him. You're looking at him. Not, he says, it's me, the one speaking with you, the one standing in front of you, but he opens with, you're looking at him. You can see him. Then the man threw himself at his feet and worshipped Jesus and said, Lord, I believe in you. And Jesus said, I've come to judge those who think they see and make them blind. And for those who are blind, I've come to make them see. Some of the Pharisees were standing nearby and overheard these words. They interrupted Jesus and said, you mean to tell us that we're blind? You know, they're picking up, they're not dumb. They're picking up the, the vibe here pretty quickly. Jesus told them, if you would acknowledge your blindness, then your sin would be removed. But now that you claim to see... Your sin remains with you. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That when Jesus enters into a situation, he transforms it. Now we don't know ever what happened to this guy, right? We don't know what the Pharisees decided. We don't know what his place in the community was. We don't know if life got easier or harder for him. So he just leaves it there. But Jesus does amazing things. When Jesus steps in and changes something, he doesn't just do it in isolation. What Jesus is doing in this story is he's trying to get not just, not just the Pharisees but the community to see that this guy is now different. There's something different about him. His eyes might be a different colour or maybe they've gone from white to having proper um, irises and pupils and all that stuff. Who knows what's happened? Change, obviously a change in his countenance. I would imagine the guy's got a smile on his face for the first time in his life. But Jesus is saying there's this role that community has in, in dealing with people. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, right? he called Lazarus, come out, you know that story, right? Come out. Lazarus walks out, shuffles out, all wrapped up in the grave clothes, and Jesus turns to the people around and says, now you unwrap him. There's two things going on here, right? Jesus performs the miracle, Jesus raises him from the dead, but the community are involved in restoring the person to who he was. We're meant to be in community. We're meant to be restored in community. It's not just a one-off event that happens. And part of, the, part of the work that we get to do as followers of Jesus is we need to step into community. We need to step into those relational places and we need to help people actually live out who they are now. This is the work of Baptist World Aid. This is what we do. This is the work you support. 
Um, I'm going to tell you a story from Cambodia purely because it's, a, it's someone that I actually met. I know this story because it's uh, met, heard the story from the source. I could tell you some stories from Uganda, but they're like third-hand stories. I want to tell you a story that I actually saw. But assume it's the same because the same thing happens in Uganda as happens in Cambodia because it happens everywhere. If we can go to the next slide. I want to show you this lady. This lady on the right, right, um, uh, it lives in rural Cambodia, up near the, the, the Thai border. This whole community um, is in the middle of an area that was devastated by the Khmer Rouge. And uh, as we're driving into this area, all around, off the roads, are just signs up saying caution landmines everywhere. So there's still landmines. There are people walking around with legs missing, all that sort of stuff in her community. She's a mum. Uh, her husband is a low-paid truck driver. He goes off to try and find work in other places around Cambodia and even across the border in Thailand. Um, she stays home with her three kids. Uh, uh, nine years ago, Baptist World Aid moved into this community to help them. We met with them. And <laughs> we, uh, when our, when our uh, bosses went into that place, they, they went in and they uh, sat down and the, the village said, look, lots of people have come and tried to do stuff before. None of it's worked. You're welcome to have a go, but we don't... Actually, sorry, my watch is dinging. You probably can't hear it, but it's driving me nuts. Um, good luck. We'll try. And um, so this woman, her three children were sponsored by Australian sponsors through our child sponsorship program. And um, she lived in this house. You can't actually see a house. It's down the other end there. Um, but uh, it's a small house. Uh, it's probably a few metres by a few metres, up on about a metre off the ground on stilts, made out of wood, rickety roof, uh, an open doorway with just like a blanket or something hanging down to block off the door. And um, uh, this is her house. Her veggie patch there was also the family toilet and uh, her kids were getting sick all the time for some reason. Um, you could imagine why. Um, and so this was her life. She joined, her kids joined the program. Uh, she uh, started to get some help on agriculture. Her kids taught her some amazing health facts that they were learning in their kids' club at school, especially about things like toilets. And so they, um, they stopped using the garden bed as a toilet and they actually built themselves a drop toilet. Um, the kids started to get healthier. She started to grow more crops. And eventually, um, one of the best things I think we do, we do it in every community we work in, we started a savings group. And we seed fund that with 300 US dollars. So that's not a lot of money, right? We seed fund that. And what happens is uh, people join it, it becomes like the community bank. Uh, banking is really hard to access in Cambodia and in most developing countries, either because the banks are a long way away, but also because of um, uh, high interest rates and corruption and all sorts of stuff. They're just a mess. And so we start this savings group. People come and they once a month meet together and commit to uh, putting so much money in and saving money together and earning interest on it as a bigger group and all those sort of things. And they call it uh, the, the bank, they call it the table bank because they sit around a table. And in this bank, right, the people who trust each other with their money, uh, they make decisions together corporately about their money. They trust each other. And in this group there are people who were, had relatives and friends and family killed by the Khmer Rouge and people who were part of the Khmer Rouge, trusting each other with their money. So she borrowed some money from that um, 
the savings group to buy some pigs. She bought a couple of pigs and she started to breed the pigs and she bred the pigs and she bred the pigs and she discovered that pigs breed like rabbits. And so she had all these pigs and she sold them all, if we can go to the next slide, and bought cows. She bought a couple of cows and then she bred the cows and bred the cows until she had 15 cows. Now, you can't see 15 cows there because there's only 10. Because not long before we got there, she sold five of those cows for 700 US dollars each. And with those, with that 3,500 US dollars, if you can go to the next slide, she's building her new house. With solid concrete foundations and proper doors and windows and rooms for her kids. Um, the drop toilet out the back. They're, they're her kids, I can't show you those photos because of child protection stuff. We don't do that. But um, uh, that's her house that she's done herself. What did we do? We gave her some education. Some Australians sponsored her children. They were involved in a kids club. And um, she uh, learnt some health and hygiene stuff. She now volunteers as a health worker in her village. And she's teaching all the other mums how to keep the houses clean, how to do proper hygiene, proper sanitation. Uh, and people from other villages are now coming to look at this village to see what they're doing. And we're just about to move out of this village. They're graduating from our program. Nine years in, we're gone. We'll keep supporting them by visits and some regular checkups over the next few years. But they are out of poverty. They are doing it themselves. The Savings Group has a community shop. They've built this shop with the profits from the Savings Group with amazing resources that every person in rural Cambodia needs, like cans of Coke. And um, so they're, uh, they're doing a great job. They've got, they've got their shop where they can buy stuff. She sells her stuff at market, her vegetables and stuff at market, as well as breeding her cows. There's another guy, a neighbour of hers, just up the road, who we went and he showed us around his farm. And he's got eggplant and he's got all these vegetables and he's got cows and he's got chickens. We, we gave him two chickens and now he's got like about 100 chickens just running around everywhere. And he's got this massive big hole he's digging in his, in his backyard. He said, what's that for? He said, I'm, um, uh, uh, I'm digging this out to become a pond for freshwater lobster. I'm going to farm them as well, as well as all the other things I'm farming. I'm, this is my new project. And uh, the workers said, yeah, yeah, people from Australia, they're, they're bringing in freshwater lobster from Australia. He's building a yabby dam in his backyard. And they're bringing yabbies in from Australia for him to grow uh, and to, to breed and to sell. And so this is the sort of work we do. And this is the sort of work, I know it's Cambodia, but this is the sort of work that your support does in Uganda as well. It's not just about handing money to people. It's not just about paying school fees or building hospitals or those sort of things. It's good, high-quality community development that actually changes lives forever and it's sustainable. COVID's been an issue. Uh, we've had 30 years of progress in, um, in community development. Uh, every year around the world, global poverty has reduced by about 1% per year for the past 30 years, about 30% reduction in extreme global poverty. Um, last year, under COVID, all of that was wiped out. We went back 30 years like that in six months. The United Nations tell us that we've got three years to try and get those countries back on track and we can then keep picking up from where we were. If we don't do it in three years, we really are back to another 30-year haul. So this is our call as followers of Jesus, to step into these places. And it's scary, and it's difficult, and it's costly. It's sacrificial, not just in giving, but in our time and in our prayers and in where we, how we think about things, how we learn about things, how we get involved in these things. But this is the work of the gospel. We dream of a world where poverty is ended. 
and all people enjoy the fullness of life that God intends. When I became a Christian, I said, Lord, now fill me in. Tell me what I'll suffer in this world of shame and sin. He said, your body may be burned and left to rot and stink. Do you still want to follow me? I said, amen. I think. I think, amen, amen, I think, I think, I say, amen. Just, I'm not completely sure. Can we just run through that again? You say my body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Well, yes, that sounds terrific, Lord. And I say, amen, I think. But Lord, there must be other ways to follow you, I said. I really would prefer to end up dying in my bed. Well, yes, he said, you could put up with sneers and scorn and spit. Do you still want to follow me? I said, amen. A bit. A bit, amen, amen, a bit, a bit, I say, amen. I'm not completely sure. Can we just run through that again? You say that I could put up with sneers and also scorn and spit. Well, yes, I've made my mind up and I say, amen, a bit. So I sat back and thought a, while, thought a while and tried a different ploy. Now, Lord, I said, the good book says that Christians live in joy. That's true, he said. You'll need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Do you still want to follow me? I said, amen. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, Lord, I'll say it then. That's when I'll say amen. I need to get it clear. Can I just run through that again? You said that I will need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Well, yep, I think I've got it straight and I'll say amen tomorrow. He said, look, I'm not asking you to spend an hour with me, a quick salvation sandwich and a cup of sanctity. The cost is you, not half of you, but every single bit. Now tell me, will you follow me? I said, amen. I quit. I'm very sorry, Lord, I said. I'd like to follow you, but I, I just don't think religion is a manly thing to do. He said, forget religion then and think about my son and tell me if you're man enough to do what he has done. Are you man enough to see the need and man enough to go? Man enough to care for those who no one wants to know? Man enough to say the thing that people hate to hear, to battle through Gethsemane in loneliness and fear? And listen, are you man enough to stand it at the end, the moment of betrayal by the kisses of a friend? Are you man enough to hold your tongue and man enough to cry? When the nails break your body, are you man enough to die? Man enough to take the pain and wear it like a crown? Man enough to love the world and turn it upside down? Are you man enough to follow me? I ask you once again. I said, oh Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, Amen. Amen, 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 amen. I said, Oh Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, Find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.